Arizona Common Ground is about exploring issues from a public health perspective. While recording and listening to this podcast, I hope to create an environment where we can challenge ourselves to listen intently, think openly, debate intelligently, and care endlessly. So thank you for listening in. Support for AZ Common Ground comes from the Western Region Public Health Training Center at the University of Arizona. In this episode, we will be speaking with healthcare experts and advocates. Deb Golett is the Executive Director at Arizona Association of Health Plans, and Dr. Joe K. Gerald is the Program Director of Public Health Policy and Management at the University of Arizona. Deb walks us through case studies at the Legislative Capitol during her time as a legislator and gives some tips on the RTS system and how to view it as a database. Meanwhile, with Dr. Gerald, we will discuss America's core values and how they play a role in shaping our own perspective on healthcare. While listening to this episode, keep in mind which core values shape your opinions and form what your viewpoints are in healthcare. Let's go. My name is Will Humble. I'm Deb Gullett. I'm Cherie Stone. Hi, I'm Greg Ensel, Vice President of Government Relations at the Arizona Hospital and Healthcare Association. This is Billy Fisher with Peacock Legal. Thanks for listening. If you're listening to this podcast, you made a good choice because public health is a great career. Hello, this is Krista, your host from AZ Common Ground. I am here in the Senate room C on the third floor, and I am sitting here with Deb Gullett, and I'm so excited to be in a room with her. Deb, can you please introduce yourself for us? You are darling. Thank you very much. (laughs) So I'm Deb Gullett. I am the executive director of the Arizona Association of Health Plans. We are an organization of the state's Medicaid contractors. So we provide health care to almost 2 million low-income Arizonans. Um, It is a huge program. I have been doing this for seven years, but I have 42 years in and around government service. I started as an intern a million years ago. (laughs) I worked in Washington for 15 years. I worked for John McCain as his chief of staff and met my husband. Wow. Um, So I moved to Arizona to um, work with John. I worked with Senator McCain for 10 years. And after his first presidential campaign, I decided I'd had enough. And my husband said, well, what does that mean? What are you going to do? And I was complaining quite a bit about politicians and how annoyed I was with many of them. And he said, put your money where your mouth is and run for office. And I never imagined that that would work out. But I was elected to the House of Representatives where I served two terms. Um, I am a pretty squishy Republican moderate, and my party, there's not a lot of room for people um, with my ideology. So I lasted two terms. I worked for Arizona State University. I worked for um, as chief of staff to the mayor of Phoenix. And then I started doing some contract lobbying, and I've been doing this now for 10 years down here. What an honor to have you. Thank you so much, Seb. I'm so impressed. I'm really old and I've had a hard time keeping a job, I think is the real story. Well, it doesn't show at all. Your energy and your engagement up here has just been incredible and phenomenal. I've been lucky enough to, I met Deb when she actually came to the University of Arizona and gave a talk in Maya Ingram's class. And it is about advocacy. And I remember Deb came in and gave us a presentation and I was just, salivating. I loved all of it. So I was so excited to get to see you in my internship up here. Be careful you don't get the bug yourself. I know. Um, We worked so hard on the community health worker bill with the College of Public Health at the University of Arizona. They were phenomenal. Thank you, Deb. Um, Going back to when you said you served two terms in the House of Representatives, what was that like? Let's start from the beginning and when you decided, you know what, I'm going to run. And I'm saying that for selfish reasons because I'm curious. I, um, So I threw my hat in the ring. I ended up in a nine-way Republican primary. Um, It was, it turned out to be the most competitive, most expensive primary in the state up till that point. Um, And I won the primary, so shoo. Um, And I came down here not really knowing what to expect, but because I'd had such a long career before that in and around government, I knew more than most people did. I imagine. Um, It was... 
I loved it. I loved the policy. I really, the, you know, the thing that, that has stuck with me all this 20 years later is that um, the friendships that I made weren't about po- politics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was a Republican. One of my favorite people was a Democrat. Um, I was a very moderate, some would say more than very moderate, um, Republican. And one, one of the, I, my seatmate was um, a very conservative Republican. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of fun and we found common ground. Um, and it was uh, it, fun to debate policy. It was fun then to go out to lunch together and talk about our kids and our families. Um, I don't think it's quite as much fun now. It is, there's a, I mean, it was pretty partisan back then. Um, but it's got a much more partisan edge now. I feel like it's trickling down more from the federal level. I mean, well, Arizona's the president. Been, yeah, I mean, it's been pretty red, but you're, you are right. And what what committees did you serve on when you were working? I started on the government committee. My first in my first year, I was on government and environment. Um, and government was a catch-all for anything that anybody, any bill that anybody wanted to dump somewhere. If they didn't have an easy home for it, they just put it in the government committee. But it was a way to learn a lot about everything from um, pension reform to uh, regulations at the Department of Administration. I enjoyed that despite uh, despite the issues being pretty dry. And then on the environment committee, mm-hmm. I really loved that. I loved environmental issues. My caucus did not think I was a positive addition to the Environment Committee because I did not toe the party line in the way that they thought that I might. And oh, so no. I um, got moved to the Health Committee and I was chairman of the Health Committee for two years. I really wanted it because I think it's such an it was such an important issue at that time. And I'm still engaged in healthcare um, today. So 20 years later, I still am fighting the fight to provide quality health care to people who need it in a way that is cost efficient. Ladies and gentlemen, a lifetime advocate for everyone. Thank you, Deb. <laughs> that is incredible. And it almost seems that every issue is a priority when you hear people's stories and you hear, you know, um, complaints or, you know, you, you want to give it all that attention. So keep that in mind because um, stories hit the heart pretty hard, but also be aware that there's so much more going on than what you see well, in front of you. especially if what you're getting, if all your news comes from One Twitter oh, or yeah. it comes from BuzzFeed or it comes from BuzzFeed um, is not a news Instagram. source. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. I just had to throw that in there. <laughs> Tell that to my children. I, I have a 23-year-old who was, who was following along um, this week with what happened at Notre Dame on BuzzFeed. And her, and she was as up to speed as I was watching CNN and reading the newspapers. So, um, yeah. But it's such a small amount of information that is available. And so it, getting all your information from just a tweet or, or a, a, some sort of post, it's hard. Oh my God. And the issues at stake down here are really complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, our Medicaid budget for the state of Arizona, federal and state money, is $14 billion a year is what we spend on just the Medicaid population. The whole entire state budget for everything else is $10 billion. So one single agency, one single program has got more money in it than all of the rest of the entire state budget. And it's so big and necessarily so complicated and so incredibly regulated by the federal government that people come out with these blithe, you know, Medicaid buy-in or Medicare for all, and that's the answer. It might be the answer, but it's super complicated to figure out how to get there. Oh, yeah. And then what are you going to do with private insurances versus the public insurance? I just, I was thinking about it, and there really is no easy solution, but I am very glad that Arizona did do the expansion, though. Um, yeah. <laughs> expansion, yeah. So. We got lucky because in Texas, they are not so lucky. So We have um, we have some heroic people down here because it was not a, an idea that Republicans warmed to. Um, and, that, and the reason is more federal government spending and more subsidized um, spending for people. Um, that some think, you know, that some do not believe that health care is a right that ought to be given by the government. And you can argue that or you can be on that side or not the other side, but but more Republicans think that way. So we had some historic, uh, really heroic people like Governor Brewer, um, who said we're going to do this, and um, Heather Carter and Kate McGee 
uh, Steve Pierce. Um, and so we've got hundreds of thousands of people getting health care, and that's important, but they're also not going to the emergency department, which is about 10 times more expensive to get your health care in the emergency department. Yeah. Now, what, what are your thoughts on Arizona's current system, and, and are you worried about what might happen at the federal level and how that might trickle down? Um, Arizona's Medicaid program has been for years the gold star of the Medicaid program. We are cost effective, we're lean, we have been for 35 years now a public-private partnership, So, and it's the best example of the state of how the public sector can leverage private know-how and private dollars to make a system work. I mean, in Arizona, 80, I want to say it's 82%, it might be 83, but upwards of 80, so let's say 80%. 80 to 85. Um, um, of, of old people in long-term care. So if you are eligible for the Arizona long-term care system, you're old, you're poor, you have a lot of issues going on, um, and the state provides not only your uh, physical health and your mental health, but the state provides housing for you and family and, and support for you to live. Um, in Arizona, 80% of the seniors in our long-term care program live at home or in the community. Which is amazing. In New York, wow. that number is opposite. In New York, 20% of New Yorkers live in home or in the community. And so it's about 10 times less expensive. And that's important, but it's also important because people live better lives. They live longer. They have less complications because they've got their family around them and their community around them. Um, and it makes for a, a better life. And we figured out, life. Yeah. you know, we figured out if the easiest way to keep somebody in their home is to make sure Meals on Wheels comes every day and we pay their cousin to check on them, well, then we'll do that. And we'll be innovative and creative to um, keep people in their homes. And it makes a big difference. So it's one of the things that I'm really proud of in the Medicaid program. Wow. Thank you how for did sharing. We, how did we get on that topic? I don't know. Did but I, I just go down that rabbit hole? I am so I'm glad, glad we yeah. did because I, I even learned from listening. So thank you so much. Um, so I'm going to jump back into uh, when when you, uh, from your perspective, your role when you were in the legislature so you could help myself and the listeners a bit more. So um, let's say as a graduate student myself, um, I want uh, I'm asking health-related questions, and I want to help the policy process. How can I do that? Sorry to switch gears so quickly. No, 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 no. If we had more people um, with expertise helping the process, it would make a huge difference. I mean, look at our community health worker bill that we did. Um, we had a lot of actual community health workers engaged in providing information and providing testimony and reaching out to legislators. And there's 90 legislators down here and they each have a different perspective and a different set of experiences and different constituencies. Um, and so it is a complicated, it, trying to get something across the finish line is a complicated task. Mm -hmm. So the more people that you have who are willing to roll up their sleeves and learn about an issue and help lobby, and maybe helping to lobby is simply going on the rest, request to speak system and logging your name in and logging your support, or simply writing an email to a legislator who represents you. I mean, I found when I served, and I know it's true today too, um, you know, legislators have to care about everybody. They care about the state. They mm -hmm. care about America. They care about all the people. They care about the children. But really, the people they care about the most are their voters mm -hmm. because they are the people who elected them. They are the people that brought them to this dance, and they are the people that they're beholden to. Yes. So so being a constituent and reaching out to your le legislator and writing an email saying, I am Deb Gullett. I live at this address. I am a constituent of yours, and I want you to vote this way, and here's why. Or I want to respectfully want to make sure you understand this issue because it's important to me. I mean, if I heard a legislator say last week he was behind on 2,000 emails, and he was going through and hitting delete, 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 oh, until no. he found the ones that were from his district. Oh, that makes sense. So, <laughs> you know, you've got groups out there that send blast emails mm -hmm. out every day, every week about vote this way, do this, do that, whether it's a Children's Action Alliance or, um, you know, some other organization that just sends blasts out. 
the ones that matter are the ones that come from the hearts of their constituents. Mm -hmm. And they'll have their secretary or their assistant to go through and say, okay, these are your constituent emails. Those are the ones that get responded to. Those are the ones that matter. And those are the ones that they refer to on their floor speeches to say, you know, I heard from a hundred constituents on this. So it must be important. Um, so that so so participating that way matters. I have to tell you, I don't do Facebook. I, I mean, it kind of creeps me out. But um, a lot of pretty creepy. A lot of people do. <laughs> Increasingly, I mean, my kids don't, but incre but but I think my mother does. So that'll tell you, <laughs> you know, sort of the increasing nature of that. But legislators all have a Facebook page. They all participate that way. They they know when their Facebook lights up and it matters. And mm -hmm. so if you want to reach your legislators or if you want to reach a large group of legislators hit them on the facebook wow um that's new news to the pod oh, well done no it is it is a huge it is a huge thing and they get alerts and they watch it and they pay attention to it and um so and that's a way to make connections with them i'm going to recap just to make sure because that was a lot of information and i love it so if you are going to send an email i will add on the subject line please please write the bill number and a dash and like a, the name of the bill and then just make sure that your title is is going to explain what your email is about say you know vote for and then bill number that way if they do look it up by bill number and then i love what you said about adding your address i didn't think of that and i love it because then you're saying hey look i really am a constituent right and this is a voice please listen and that is incredible so make sure your subject line has a bill number Put in your address. If it is a blast email, change it. Just take the extra five minutes to make it come from the heart, as Deb yeah. mentioned, because then it'll get put on the tally. Um, and then Facebook and social media. Ding them on there. It's huge. Follow me. At the moment, I am documenting the internship at the Capitol and just connecting Arizonans to what's going on up here and painting a picture of how you can get involved and what the rooms look like and just kind of empower you guys to um, get involved. Don't be afraid to come here. Um, it really makes it, it. It's a big impact. It, you know, if you want to sit and make an appointment with your legislator, call them up. If you're a constituent, they'll see you. I, I mean, they they see a lot of people, but the priority is constituents. So make the trip to the Capitol, be organized in your talking points. They don't have a lot of time to talk about sort of philosophical issues. So the idea that you might want to come to the Capitol and just have a conversation about climate change or global warming or the environment or, or something like that, they're going to say, yeah, no, what bill are you talking about? Because our session here lasts 100 days and it is all driven by these bills were introduced, these bills are moving, these bills are in my committee, these bills I have to vote on. And they sort of go through that progression. Um, so, so you need to be bill specific. If you want to have coffee with them and talk about, you know, the latest on Mexico trade issues, then do that after the session is over. Thank you. That is very, very important information because since I've been shadowing Senator Carter, it's incredible how she fits everything in, but there really is just constant movement. You know, even if you have a meeting and it gets pushed off, don't think, don't take it personally. You know, we just, there's a lot of movement going on, reschedule. So just stay resilient, stay involved. And again, when you do come bring your talking points, be concise and thank them for their time. Cause really it's, uh, they're just going nonstop. So awesome. Thank you. And I'm going to, I'm going to switch over a bit. We were talking about using the RTS system and I noticed that there is a way to give presentations before committee. I've noticed we did it in the health and human services here with the telemedicine bill. So almost every committee will take a, will have a presentation at the start of their committee hearing. Uh, I am a volunteer. I lead the legislative efforts of the Flynn Foundation's Bioscience Steering Committee in a volunteer capacity. And one of the things that we did is take advantage of that. And so we brought um, both to the House Health Committee or the Senate Health Committee and the House Commerce Committee um, three scientists down to do presentations about the biosciences and how fantastic. It's the first time the Flynn Foundation has come to the legislature because they're a nonprofit 501c3. They don't lobby, but they would like to get this message out. And so 
so we use that as our vehicle. Wow. Most legislators, most committee chairmen will start at the beginning of the session with an idea for, uh, okay, we're going to have eight committee hearings, so that's eight presentations. Let's think about what we care about, like the vaccination presentation, and that was really four hours of the anti-vaxxers who just had a giant microphone and it was pretty horrific. I was worried because once I looked in and, and I don't want to misspeak, but I, I was there that day and I realized that everyone's story is important. We do have to listen to each other, but I didn't understand why the presenter was called a specialist when after I looked at what they did, they were not an expert. Some of the facts that were presented were not facts. And so I'm wondering what can we do in academia to almost help steer facts and or, you know, make sure that the wrong voice isn't being considered as facts. Um, honestly, that is such a wildly controversial issue. And when you have controversial issues like that, whether it's the vaccination or in previous years, we've had, you know, two hour presentations on abortion and when life begins and what happens at six weeks or what happens at eight weeks to a fetus. So, um, you know, it's not like there isn't a massive amount of information and facts on the importance of vaccines. I mean, mm -hmm. it was on the front page of the newspaper today. Yeah. I don't know that that's where I'd make my stand to try to let academia lead the charge. At the same time, the Senate Health Committee, I think, had a very thoughtful conversation about vaccinations with data from public health and with data from um, the CDC and the state health director. So there's different ways to approach that. But I think the, I think the key to making a presentation and getting getting invited to make a presentation is to have something relevant, to have something lively, to have something that can be understood and can be conveyed in 10 minutes because that's all you got. Wow. So coming to present a research paper that probably people would get up, legislators would get up and leave. But coming to present research that's impactful and would have a difference in public policy and make a difference in the lives of people here, there's always an appetite for that. I mean, in the Flynn Foundation, we went to the Senate Health Committee and we went to the House Health Committee and they were actually doing the vaccination presentation. So instead of going to health, we went to the Commerce Committee thinking that there's such a big economic impact in what we're talking about. So there's more than one way to get your point across. Those presentations are taped, they're online, you can pull them down online. And so we shared the link with lots and lots of people. And it gave us a, a, something to be able to share widely with legislators and give us a foundation on which to grow. I mean, the Flynn Foundation will never probably have a bill, but we want to make sure that all 90 legislators understand that the impact that the biosciences have in our community, not just helping save people, but having really, really good jobs that make a big difference. And this is before session, meaning yes, people so would have to do it before January. And I like the tactic and strategy you mentioned is, you know, say in one committee it didn't, you know, you didn't get the presentation or they're busy or it's already booked, whatever the reason may be try somewhere else, maybe commerce or, you know, transportation. Once you do have the talking space, it is on the record. So as Deb mentioned, you can go back and, and share that link and share it to other legislators. Be like, hey, you know, we gave this presentation. If you have any questions or concerns, feel free to email me. I'd love to, you know, be a resource is what I'm, is what we're trying to share is. Um, and another way to be a resource is because the session is 100 days, a lot of work happens in the interim. So once the session is over, there will be interim committees and interim work and interim stakeholder groups that are going to that'll get up and running. The community health worker bill came out of a task force that a couple legislators had to um, look at our workforce. So we talked in the whole interim about how to, what's the best strategy to move forward. We had community health workers and advocates from all over the state. I mean, anybody could come to those meetings and participate in those meetings. And then the first year we ran the bill and were not successful. Um, so we regrouped and regrouped with the group over the interim and came up with a better strategy to do it. And so we were able to be successful the second time around. And how do you find those committees and those groups? Let's say you don't live in Phoenix and you don't know when the stakeholder groups are. How, like a Google search? I feel like that'd be too broad. Um, so, I mean, I think it depends on your 
issue area. So a Google search is too broad, but looking, I mean, trying to pay attention if you care about the healthcare workforce, for example. Mm -hmm. We now have a committee on higher education and workforce development. Um, all of those committee hearings are videotaped. I mean, it's not an easy task, but go through the go through the minutes of the committee hearing and watch the conversation, mm -hmm. and see what they're talking about and see who's talking about what. So, if Senator Gray, for example, has an issue that he says, "I'm really going to work on this on the interim," then reach out to Senator Gray and say, "I want to help. I want to be a participant." Um, and I know it's a big task to go through and watch committee hearings, but on the other hand, I do it all the time. I click on the health committee because I'm not sure I understood what happened. I'm not sure I remember the vote count. I was sitting in the audience and then I'll go back and click on the health committee and watch it all over again to make sure I didn't miss anything. Um, and if I can do it, somebody who has a passion for an issue, that's it. I mean, that's a pretty that's, easy thing to do. I agree. And I, I will also add that um, that's very easy to use. We do have a tutorial on YouTube, um, but definitely just go on the website, explore, and you can see live committee hearings that are going on today, right now at the moment, or you can see some that have happened in the past as well. I will also add that there are organizations such as Arizona Public Health Association and other associations that exist, and you can probably look at their website and see what they're following and maybe jump in there or send them an email. For example, for APHA, it's Will Humble who oversees the Arizona Public Health Association. Send Will an email, say, hey, this is what my research is on, these are my interests, how can I be involved? And then they might be able to connect, connect you or connect right. you. So. And you can search the azledge.gov website by a phrase or a word. Or if there's a bill that you want to know more about, you can type the bill number in and then get the entire history, including all of the documents related to the bills, all the video of the bills, the who was for it and who was against it, and see a list of people and organizations that are one way or the other. Um, yeah, yeah, and then reach out to the associations. Awesome. I'm going to switch gears because I know we're coming close to the end of our, of our time. When I first started, and this is going back to um, when I first went into uh, the Health and Human Services Committee and I sat down in the room and I felt like I did my homework and I was ready and then I realized I had no idea who the people in the middle were and I had no idea who was in the audience. Now, months later, I now have been able and lucky enough to develop relationships where I know that there's health agencies and I know who's in the middle. They have policy analysts, they have um, everyone in the middle, staff, and there's another podcast that actually goes in and we speak with people that are there and that's in podcast who's who. So if you are more interested in that, feel free to look, take a deep dive there. But for this, can we talk about the other people in the room that are sitting in the audience? Lobbyists mostly, lobbyists. And there are hundreds of us. Um, and they either represent state agencies. Now, the state agencies, I don't think they call themselves lobbyists anymore. They call them government relations liaisons. Oh, that sounds so um, much better. Lobbyists <laughs> is such a bad word. So the health department will have staff there. The Arizona Healthcare Cost Containment System, which is our Medicaid program, their staff will be there. The governor's office is frequently there. Um, if you see a group of really well-dressed 20-something people pounding away on the laptops. Those are interns. And the governor's office has interns that cover every single committee hearing. Advocacy organizations, and there'll be hundreds of them. Um, uh, I mean, the best example is when the teachers came down and the Red for Ed campaign happened last year. You'd go into a hearing room and there'd be 400 people down there who were advocating for an education bill. In the health committee, that, um, that, that we've got these things, they're called um, the regulatory boards and the licensing boards. So there's a board that oversees pharmacists and doctors and DOs and dentists and hair cutting, although I think we got rid of the blow drying regulations what? this <laughs> legislative session. But there's a nursing board and they all are constituted by the legislature. And so you go into any health committee and it's filled with people who are advocates for or, or who are staff for all of those licensing boards because those are all governed by statute. And then you've got, you know, advocates. That's why it's so important to sign in on the request to speak system. There's an opportunity to have 250 characters worth of 
text. Mm -hmm. So put a message in there too. Mm -hmm. And, um, and make sure if you are going to testify, you're not saying the same thing because even though do not say the same thing you think is important, (laughs) the people sitting up there after you hear it three times, you pretty much got the message. Don't, you know, don't, don't, don't take us to the minimum wage. Here's why I got a job. It's not fair. And the Congress and the state already passed this bill. So yeah, that's um, people don't need to hear that same thing over and over again. Gotcha. So I, I was wrong. I was under the impression that if you sign in in the RTS system, you have a right to speak. No. But that is not correct. No, you are asking to oh, speak. Oh, that is so sad. Right. But I, I mean, I understand because, you know, you only have so many hours in a day. Right. But I guess that is a good learning experience for me. Thank you, Deb. But <laughs> perfect. And I was going to. So one of my last questions, I guess, will be. Um, when you were a representative, um, and I'm going to, I don't know if I'm allowed to dip into this, but I'm going to just go for it. Um, in the presentation, when you were in our classroom, you mentioned that you kind of opened the floor and you brought in Republicans and Democrats and you're like, you know, this is an issue. We need to work on this. This is what our stakeholder group should look like. Um, is this the time where they shut it down? Yeah, when they <laughs> shut you down. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, it. it some in leadership and some Republicans and some Democrats, and you're seeing it in the Democrat caucus right now about, you know, who is, we have a caucus position, we have a caucus view of the world, we are a party that matters and our party matters the most. So me inviting, and I think it was, um, it was, was it the right to, the right to death with dignity was one, I had a hearing on that bill. And I just had an informational hearing and about Just five, informational? Yeah, it wasn't, we weren't even going to vote on a bill. I had an informational hearing. It was the first one ever and in the Arizona legislature about whether a person could take their lives if they had a terminal illness mm-hmm. or they could enlist their family to help them. And I knew it was going to be controversial, but we had 500 people show up. What? And we had doctors wow. yelling at, oh, no. um, you are not going to make me a murderer. I took a Hippocratic oath and then oh, we had no. people on the other side saying my you know my my parent my dad is dying the most horrific death there ever was he wants to end it and we have to help him do this so yeah it was really awful oh my gosh I had the security come and the legislature the leadership of the house said I could never do that again oh, I, had to, I had to get permission and then I did have it um a stakeholder meeting at the beginning before every hearing I invited all the healthcare lobbyists to come and talk to me about you know here are all the bills we're going to hear and anybody could come and those mm-hmm. became a kind of a free for all and people didn't get their way and then they called and complained about me it was not I mean I was, it sounds like a like a hot it was topic super fun I, I bet you were on fire <laughs> for it, was, the, it was super fun for the listeners that don't know what caucus is can you explain that to us um so caucus is the so the Republicans and the Democrats, each in the House and the Senate, have um, their exclusive membership. So you're part of the Republican caucus or the Democrat caucus. Mm-hmm. And they meet together frequently in public to talk about bills. Um, they also periodically meet in private um, to talk about bills and to talk about personnel issues and to ta- have, you know, secret behind closed doors budget conversations is what I uh, assume that was mm-hmm. had that happened when I was there. Gotcha. Um, but they have uh, so and they take positions. And the view is if you are a part of the Republican caucus or the Democrat caucus, here is our position and you should vote that way. Understood. They don't always take caucus positions, thank goodness. And there are plenty of bills that get out here with unanimous support. Um, Democrats and Republicans joining together and working together. And mm-hmm. I think it happens here way more than it ever does at the federal level. Yes. Um, I mean, it happens here in a week more than it happens at the federal level all year long. We have examples in the podcast where we're saying, you know, this didn't make the news, but this passed unanimously. And, right. you know, and, and-, and frequently that happens because they're just easy issues. But frequently it happens because people come together and work their tails off Mm -hmm. to get the bills right. So our community health worker bill that went down in flames a year, two years ago, passed almost unanimously this year or last year because Mm -hmm. we had because we worked it really hard and were able to get to every member of the legislature and say, this is not a partisan issue. This is an issue that really is impactful in our state. And there's a lot of that, but not all of it. And some of it is really hard. Yes. 
So and, that's what the caucus does. The caucus is the Republicans ca caucus together and the Democrats caucus together and make life decisions about things. <laughs> Thank you, Deb. Any last words for our listeners? No, this is super fun. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I'm really it. happy to. I have to admit, I've never actually listened to a podcast before. <gasps> really? I, you know, I, I am old and the technology just sometimes gets away from me. But once the session is over, I'm going to be a podcast person. How's that? There you go. I'll, I'll send you the link and then you okay. can share it with people. Thank you so much, Deb. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. Bye-bye, everyone. everyone. Welcome to Arizona Common Ground. I am your host, Krista, and we are recording from the Western Region Public Health Training Center recording studio. And I'm here with Dr. Joe Gerald, and I'm going to let him introduce himself. Hi, Hi Joe. everybody. Uh, hello. I'm Dr. Joe Gerald. I'm uh, director of the Public Health Policy and Management Program at the Melanie Zuckerman College of Public Health at the University of Arizona. Goodness, what a title. It is. It's a mouthful. <laughs> And uh, so I'm very lucky where I got to work with Dr. Gerald for a semester as his teaching assistant. And so I am a little bit nervous going into this podcast episode because we are going to be discussing something that we discuss in class. So All the time. Yeah, something near and dear to my heart. Yes. And I'm worried that a pop quiz might come up. So anyways, this is going to be quite exciting. So thank you for being with us here, Dr. Gerald. And uh, let's just jump right into it. Absolutely. All right. So when I first met you, I asked... Why can we not disagree on health care? Um, you know, we all seem to want the same thing. So we want our health care to be affordable and we want it to be readily accessible, meaning so if we want to see a doctor, we should be able to see him when we need to. So I thought we should discuss why it is that health care is so complicated. And if we all want the same result, what's stopping us? Yeah. And so you've hit on an important point, which is um, most of us, when asked, have a very similar views about health care. We want it to be affordable and accessible. Mm -hmm. uh, and the controversy comes around how do we make that happen? Exactly. And um, there are four things that I, I've kind of come to in my work here, mm -hmm. thinking about where much of our disagreement lies. It uh, surrounds four different kind of things, um, things that are pretty unique to Americans when we compare ourselves to residents of other countries on how we approach public problems, because this is really a public problem. Uh, one is we're, we're really rugged individualists in the U.S., uh, you know, pretty much exemplified by the phrase, don't tread on me, right? We want to have mm -hmm. personal autonomy to make good decisions, bad decisions, and that type of thing. And, Freedom and of want, choice is yeah, important in America. It is. And we <laughs> want government out of our lives, um, except when we don't. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one. Uh, Catch this, 22. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> The uh, second one is um, we really don't trust the government, uh, particularly the feds. And um, we really prefer public – or sorry, we really prefer private solutions to public solutions. And so I uh, really spend a lot of time thinking about how biz private businesses, volunteer groups, social groups can help us achieve the things that we want while minimizing the government's role in our day-to-day -day, um, lives. And so many of us uh, end up arguing about that because some are more willing to exceed some of this responsibility to the government where others um, really don't want to do that. Uh, a third is uh, really is, uh, our ambivalence as a country about social equity in mm -hmm. which groups should have full inclusion in rights and which shouldn't, right? And so mm -hmm. we can think about race. We can think about ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation. And so equal rights and protection for those groups has been difficult and slow over uh, the number of years. And so when we think about health care, um, who has access and who doesn't is really dependent on many of those features. And so we, we struggle to include everyone. Um, and can you remember what the fourth one is? Because I'm yes. blanking on it right distributive now. distributive justice, but just oh, yeah. to bring it. Yeah, no, go ahead. And, Tell us about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, so thinking about notions of distributive justice, which in the U.S. really kind of comes down to, uh, you know, you have a right to, to eat what you kill, you reap what you sow. Mm -hmm. And so individual's lot in life is thought to be determined by the choices that they make, um, whether they're making wise decisions uh, or not, uh, obeying the social customs. And we think for those who work hard and follow the rules, then good outcomes just naturally follow. And if something good hasn't happened to you, it's really due to your own fault. You've, you've done you something wrong. Yeah, or you didn't put anything in so you don't deserve anything back in Absolutely, a sense. yeah. So, oh man, and so I'm going to repeat these values because the way you mentioned it was really well said. So America's values and the four are individualism, 
distrust of government, distributive justice, and equal opportunity social justice. Yeah. And these really do influence the, as you mentioned, the structure and also the function of how our healthcare is run. And I thought we should talk a little a little bit about examples. Okay. So in individualism and healthcare, I think about my grandmother, my grandmother being just an example of like, this is what I want. It is my choice to choose this doctor. This is who I want. How do we kind of change that mentality to be like, oh, well, for the better of everyone else and so everyone can equally see a doctor, you might have to see someone different. Yeah, and so I would clarify that just a little bit to say a choice of healthcare provider, whether mm-hmm. it's a physician or a healthcare facility, is certainly one of the important dimensions. Uh, the other one that you didn't touch on is a choice of treatments and uh, making sure that the government doesn't uh, regulate those and leave us with a situation in which there's a treatment that could make our lives better, but the government says for some reason we can't access it. It's too costly. Are we talking mm-hmm. about, for example, cancer treatments? Uh, it could be. So think about exp- what we might exist on the border of experimental versus new cancer treatments. Okay. Uh, so, for example, the uh, movie John uh, Q with Denzel Washington uh, about a decade ago kind of highlighted this issue. He the he had a son who had a rare form of blood cancer, mm-hmm. and the insurance company, not the government in this case, but the insurance company, a health maintenance organization, said he couldn't, his son couldn't get this treatment because it was too costly. And uh, so then he, the rest of the movie unfolds of his fight to uh, have his son um, get this treatment, really. Mm-hmm. And so that's what many Americans worry about. And it's it's not the everyday treatments that the government's likely to um, kind of with restrict and withhold. It's going to be typically those treatments that are very new, very expensive. Maybe they're a little bit unproven. And the government might want to say, hey, let's wait a minute. Let's um, test this in more people. Let's understand more about its cost and its benefits before we make it widely available. And in doing that, mm-hmm. some people are going to some people who might have benefited from that treatment are going to go without until the government is convinced that it's worth doing. And uh, that really um, frightens people, understandably. And so that's a grave concern. If we allow the government to get its nose under the tent, um, are we going to lose our choice of doctors, hospitals, and treatments? God, that's a great segue to the distrust of government. Mm-hmm. Which is another value. Yeah, we don't, right? And so uh, if you were to ask Americans before the Vietnam War, so in the early 1960s, uh, whether they trusted the government to do things right most of the time or all the time, about three quarters would say, yes, we, we fundamentally trust the government. Uh, but since uh, the Vietnam War and Watergate, uh, public trust in particularly federal institutions has declined dramatically to where only 25 percent of Americans would say today they trust the government to do the right thing most or all the time. 25 percent. That's incredibly low. That's very, very, very low. It is. It's dangerously low. only a minority of people trust the government and then you say, well, we want government to take over health care. Well, you How? No, that sounds unsafe. (laughs) It does, right? Um, And so, you know, I think that should be tempered by, you know, if you ask your grandparents who likely have Medicare Mm -hmm. and Social Security, whether they get their Social Security check every month, they're going to say, yes, they do. Uh, Can they access the doctor and hospitals of their choice? My guess is they're going to say they're very happy with their Medicare, which is basically a government-run program for health Mm -hmm. insurance for the elderly. And so it's this very odd dichotomy with most of what the government does, it actually does pretty well. Um, But we still don't like it. Um, uh, And and we don't trust it to do the right things. And, you know, there are examples where the government hasn't performed its oversight functions well, or it does really stupid things. Um, But those, I think, really get a lot of uh, notoriety because of their unusualness where most of the government is doing the mundane stuff day in and day out, mostly correct. Yeah. And I'm going to add that what I've noticed, I mean, there's been a huge boom and a change in the way social media and media now updates our you know, citizens on the news. And like you mentioned, a lot of things are done correctly, and but that does that never makes it to the news. Yeah. So it's, it's not exciting. It doesn't sell. No, um, you know the, the the bad things sell, and that's not to diminish the fact that we really do need oversight of our government functions, and the public needs to be involved and educated. Um, but the level of distrust that we see now is probably out of proportion to the reality, and it's preventing us from getting things done, done, things that we want done, right? Whether mm-hmm. it's uh, addressing healthcare or improving education, mm-hmm. addressing climate change. Um, we've kind of gotten ourselves in this 
almost uh, paralytic state where uh, we want to do something, but we're afraid to do it. And there's still a lot of work to be done. I think that leads us into the social justice value that we were yeah. discussing. Yeah, the social equity and, and who belongs and who doesn't. And so yeah. when we look at the, the uninsured, we see that the highest risk of being uninsured falls upon uh, minority groups, uh, Hispanic and Latinx Americans, mm-hmm. uh, African Americans, um, immigrants, mm-hmm. refugees. Uh, it's also um, heavily skewed towards uh, low-income individuals. And there's this kind of notion when we think about low-income or the poor, again, thinking about distributive justice, that mm-hmm. they're there because through their fault of their own. But when we look at it, it's um, everyday Americans who are working pretty typical jobs, many of them in the service industry. So they're working for hotels, restaurants, um, uh, landscaping companies, healthcare yeah. facilities, oddly enough. But they're working at those entry-level positions that... Um, do not pay with for health insurance. They do not come with benefits. And they might have to get a second job where they might even get more sick yeah. later and still not have health yeah, insurance. And trying to make uh, ends meet, right? And so... Um, we would look at these if we were if we were to enter these people's homes and look at their lives. We would see that they're really working very hard yeah. to better themselves and to make sure their children have a, a, a better life than they did. Um, but they can't afford health insurance, and it's not really their fault. They're doing everything society's asked of them. Healthcare is just expensive. It is, and I and I it makes me think if we're talking about distributive justice, you know. Uh, the build yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, in America, we want to say yes, because that's what we believe in. But in public health, it's almost like a paradox because we know about social determinants of health. And so I feel that we are stuck in this catch-22 that brings us to what I want to talk about next, which I think it'd be good to talk about what seems to be that catch-22, the social justice versus market justice. And so how do we as public health individuals Actually, we should probably explain what that is first. Yeah, and so there are two competing um, ways to think about uh, how to provide healthcare benefits. And so, uh, historically, traditionally, the U.S. healthcare system has been based under market justice principles, and that means that healthcare is not a right, but it's a reward for those individuals who are doing the right things. They've gotten a higher education, they have a job, they work hard. Uh, they follow the rules and laws of the land. And so because they've made those wise decisions, they get health care. And this notion that they've done so voluntarily, that you know they purchase health care as if they would purchase other consumer goods, whether it's a car or a house. And so some people can afford bigger houses, some can't. In, in health insurance, some people have access to better health insurance or health care than others. And again, it's thought to be okay because mm-hmm. that's what they've earned and it's a privilege. It, it's not a right. And then if we're going to think about solving these problems, it's figuring out how to get more people in better jobs, better education. It's not really Higher a problem education. with the healthcare mm-hmm. system. Uh-huh. It's a problem with these these other things. And so the government doesn't need to get involved um, because we can't trust it anyway. It's probably not going to be very efficient and <laughs> right. do the Distrust right things. Yeah. yeah. And, and so if we're going to solve our problems, uh, we need to do it um, through private businesses and uh, through our own individual actions. And that mm-hmm. forms kind of the basic framework for healthcare. But the downside is mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of people that can't afford health care under these market conditions. And at the height of uh, the problem in 2010, we were talking about 20 percent of Americans lacking health insurance. And, and so the social justice framework is another way to look at it. It says um, all Americans, all humans have value and um, they deserve certain things, opportunities to live a full and rewarding life. And part of that is being healthy and being able to afford health care. And it shouldn't be something that exists behind a paywall, but rather something that everyone can freely access because they only access it when they need it, right? No mm-hmm. one presumably goes to the doctor because it's fun. Uh, they go to the doctor. Because they and need to. Because they're they need sick. to. Yeah, Something's wrong. Yeah, and it's not their fault. And there's treatment that can help them. Why wouldn't we? help them in a social justice framework. Um, Health is something that good health of our fellow Americans is something that benefits us all. Healthy Americans are more productive Americans. They can more fully engage in our economy. They can pay taxes, things of that nature. And also they're just their fellow humans and we have something in common with them. And so uh, healthcare is a right. 
um, everybody should have access to it. And we know, though, healthcare is expensive, and we can't give everything to everyone. And so someone has to step in and make decisions to make sure the right care is getting to the right people at the right time. And under a social justice framework, the idea is that the government is the only entity that's big enough, large enough, resourced enough to be able to to help make those decisions, not necessarily making the decisions itself, but think Provide about the resources. Or? Yeah, well, think about the United States present, uh, United States Preventative Services Task Force, which makes recommendations. Preventative Services Task, Task Force. Force. Yeah, which it's makes recommendations on screening and uh, that's right. vaccinations. And, um, you know, so it's not really the government that's making decisions on screening. It has an independent group of experts, academicians, economists, um, clinicians who sit down and argue amongst themselves. What's the evidence? What's the data? Yeah. What are the best decisions? And then they, that's the recommendations that they make. And so they're not the government. They are experts and all kinds of uh, folks. And so I think, uh, you know, that is a good example of what people who propose the social justice framework would say. That's how the government's involved. It's not It's not President Trump reaching down and going, you can have this or you can have that. It's mm-hmm. Uh, a group of people who know something about healthcare making these decisions or recommendations. How do we explain to the public why this is so difficult? Why healthcare is such a difficult topic, and and the fact that we actually were able to do the Medicaid expansion in Arizona? Well, I'm glad you brought up the Medicaid thing. Can we talk about? Yeah, Medicaid let's talk. A bit? Let's do it because it's a good example of where these perfect uh, issues intersect with each other. And so, uh, one thing would be thinking about. Medicaid work requirements. And so a handful of states right now are um, asking the federal government for waivers uh, to uh, allow eligibility for Medicaid, the health insurance program for the Low poor, income. Yeah, mm-hmm. to be um, in part determined by someone's employment status or their enrollment in school or that they're doing something to better themselves by doing job training or they're taking care of their family or something. And so basically there's this notion that poor people um, are poor because they've made bad decisions. And we don't want to give them something for free like Medicaid if they don't deserve it. And so it fit work requirements fit within this traditional notion of distributive justice that, okay, Americans are happy to help those who are trying to help themselves. And we'll give people a, a hand up and not a handout, right? Okay. And so if you're working, if you're a full-time student, then um, you can have Medicaid. But if you don't fall in, into that kind of group, then you can't, right? Uh, and, and we're doing it for your own good. We're trying to encourage you or incentivize you to go out and get a job or start making better decisions in your lives. Medicaid work requirements. Um, are we going to talk about the cons of that and how we dangerous are. that is? Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, and so, right, and so, but then we actually, you know, so what the role of a policy analyst is to go, okay, well, let's look at it and let's see what the data show. How, yes. who do these programs affect? Um, what kind of impact do they have? And so um, we've done that. We've had uh, several examples recently um, that have at least a year's worth of data to look at. And so, kind of one of the first thing is almost everybody who has Medicaid that's a working-age adult mm-hmm. already meets one of the exemption requirements. They are working. Mm-hmm. They are going to school. They're caring for a family member. They're doing something. It's only about somewhere between 5 and 10% of working-age adults who are on Medicaid don't fall in one of the obvious exemption categories. Um, that's very low. Yeah, it is I very feel like low. people would be amazed, 5 to 10%. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a small – it may even be smaller than that, but it's a tiny – it's a small, tiny number. And so this is a lot of effort and energy to weed out what would be – a small a number of patients. So we had uh, put in a lot of energy and effort um, to do that. Um, but what a lot of policy experts have been worried about is that, I mean, for lack of a better word, the work requirements are really a ruse. They're not primarily, even though they're presented to the public as a way to in- ensure that people deserve the help that we're giving them. But when we look at who drops off or loses coverage in um, these states, it's people who have the jobs and are going to school, but the uh, documentation and the effort required to meet the eligibility requirements or to, or to ensure or to, to show to the government, prove to the government that you met these eligibility requirements are so onerous that people are going, screw it, it's too Whatever. hard. I, I'm not doing that. And so the people that are losing coverage are the ones that need it the most. Yes. Filling out some stupid government form for health care that they're not using because they're healthy doesn't matter. And so they let it go. 
And as long as they stay healthy, that's not a problem. But we can't predict with 100% certainty whether we're going to remain in good health or not. I mean, we literally can get hit by the bus tomorrow. Or today. Uh, or, or today. Well, and, that's well, a pessimistic view, but still, okay. whatever. <laughs> and, uh, right, and so these individuals then are put themselves at risk. They're probably going to be okay. But many of them are going to suffer um, uh, healthcare events that um, is going to disadvantage them because they don't have their health insurance, right? And so we've done more harm than good. Very few people don't meet the requirements. The people that um, are dropping off are the ones that do, but it's too difficult. And so it's a way that in this kind of ideological space, yeah. we thought we were doing the right thing. We were incentivizing people to do good, to do good, but we weren't. We were hurting the people we were trying to help and that we would all look at and go, they deserve a hand up mm-hmm. and we want to help them, but we're hurting them instead. And so that's one example of where there's a government program. And in many ways, our ideology and these values are getting in the way of more uh, evidence-based um, approaches to improving the lives of everyone. Yeah. So do you have any any last things you'd like to say to maybe listeners that may not be lucky mm-hmm. enough to take your class, but for listeners to understand not just politics in America and what are values that drive that, but in the state of Arizona? Uh, you know, I guess some things that I would say is, you know, to, to focus on the things that we want in common. I think almost all of us uh, want access to affordable health care. And we probably all, to some degree or other, believe that everyone has some right Uh, to that and that we should recognize that most of our fellow Americans are doing the things that we would expect them to do. They're working, they're participating in society, they're going to school, they're bettering the lives for themselves and their children. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, are there some people out there making bad decisions? Everywhere. You find, yeah, everyone makes mistakes. But there are way more that aren't Mm -hmm. um, than are. And so we have way more common ground than we uh, would imagine that we have. I think a lot more room to maneuver to make our lives better. You know, so thinking about the Democratic presidential election, so I know you asked about um, the state, but thinking about um, uh, the big one that's coming up in 2020. Health care is likely to be an important issue. It is an important issue. And for Democrats, um, right, so we're in the midst of this Medicare for all debate. And so that'd be another good podcast. But, you know, Medicare for all means lots of different things right now because it's still poorly or illy defined. Um, it's a debate that's right now almost solely happening within the de- Democratic primary. Republicans are still on the um, a repeal, the Affordable Care Act, um, ostrich head in the sand kind of thing. No, no plan. Uh, but amongst the Democrats, there's a really a good conversation happening about how to um, move forward from here, how to build on the success of the ACA. And so one how to group, amend it, right, yeah. instead well, of just repeal? Well, well, one, that could be one option. And so, But if you go with, let's say, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren's most recent proposal, they're like, man, we're throwing out the baby, the bathwater, and you, hey, we're just remodeling the whole bathroom here. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> they're saying what we're going to do is we're going to take Medicaid. We're going to – I'm sorry, Medicare. We'll take mm-hmm. Medicare. Mm-hmm the program for the elderly, elderly. and disabled. Mm-hmm. We're going to make it better, and we're going to make it a lot bigger. In fact, we're going to make it so big, we're going to give it to everybody that's in the United States. We're going to use the government's power to make this thing we call our healthcare system to run better. Uh, and so that's the far left edge of the Democratic Party. I mean, that's the most aggressive policy proposal. Uh, but the others that are uh, arguing for more incremental reform going, whoa, okay, that's nice. It's aspirational. We want to mm-hmm. get to universal health care like every other advanced economy in the world. But we got to take baby steps. America's not ready for it yet. We're still growing up. Maybe we can just take Medicare and we'll give it to a few more people. Let's, instead of starting at 65, how about let's start at 50, for example. Yeah. And that won't get everybody, but it It'll expand the coverage to more people. Expand the coverage to more people. Some others are going, well, you know, the Affordable Care Act, it worked pretty good, but we now know enough about it. Here, here's what we didn't get right. Let's go back and fix those things and make it better. Let's think about the 14 states that still haven't expanded Medicaid. And, and we're go, right next to one, Texas. You're right? missing out on all this money, and yeah. your people really need this. They do. <laughs> yeah, it's a no-brainer, right? And so they're arguing that let's not distract ourselves into this really tough debate that's going to go down the socialized medicine road. Let, let's continue practicing this pragmatic incremental reform mm-hmm. uh, kind of thing. Yeah, and so how do we get there? Well, I think education, like this podcast, right, 
asking people to be more thoughtful, to do a little bit of investigation of their own, to maybe set aside some of their prejudice, uh, focus on the goal that we want, affordable health care for everybody, and um, realize that we're on this little ship um, together. Yeah. And um, if it goes down, we all go down. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's not going to be the survival um, compound. Uh, the zombies are coming us for all, for no. all of us in the apocalypse. We have to find common ground before the zombies come. Yes. So we'll late. be well prepared. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard it. Thank you so much, Dr. Gerald, for your time. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thank you. Doing great work. Just in time for a quick recap, Deb gave us real case studies to paint a picture of the legislative side of healthcare. Meanwhile, with Dr. Gerald, we took a deep dive into America's values about what influences the structure and function of our healthcare system. Them being, one, individualism, two, distrust of government, three, distributive justice, and four, social equity, equality of opportunity. We spoke about the market justice approach to healthcare, which comes from principles of individualism, self-interest, personal effort, and voluntary behavior. The contrasting approach was social justice, which allocates goods and services based on individual needs. So remember these values when speaking to someone who thinks differently and aim to find common ground through the other core values. Thank you for listening in. See you next time.